The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. The most recent publication of Second Mission Foundation is The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. This book follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir Helmand Province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. To find out more about The Hill, to buy The Hill, and any other publication Second Mission has, as well as see all their lines of effort, visit them at secondmissionfoundation.org. That is Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. And I thank Second Mission Foundation for sponsoring this episode today. My guest today was Wesley Morgan, author of The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. Wes is a graduate of Princeton University, which we talk about a little bit because he did not have the conventional college experience. <laughs> I mean, he uh, interrupted his, his education uh, pretty significantly to cover the things that he ended up covering, uh, which we'll talk about in the episode. But he is a military affairs reporter. He covered the Pentagon for two and a half years at Politico. He also worked as a freelance journalist in Washington, D.C., Iraq, and Afghanistan. He has contributed stories to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, many other publications. Um, so I was thrilled to get him on the show because he is uh, you know, incredibly articulate about things that um, I'm interested in and I think you all are interested in, uh, which is to say war and the military. The Hardest Place, his book, is one of those books that I feel like if you're serious in your study of war, the military, or Afghanistan, uh, you can't help but have in your library. Uh, you, It's one of those books that I feel like if I'm talking to someone and they haven't read it, um, I can't take their opinion as seriously. Not because you know many Afghan veterans don't already have all the experience and, and education they need to unpack things from Afghanistan, but I do feel like uh, Wes's book, that the hardest place, says things that many any veteran of Afghanistan would know or be able to relate to, but says them maybe in a way that we hadn't thought before. Um, not necessarily about the emotions of war; that's not his focus. Um, he's not claiming to be a soldier, although he was embedded with troops uh, for a significant period of time. But mostly because of the uh, way the war played out, and. Uh, you know, obviously in the veteran community in the wake of the Afghanistan withdrawal, we've all done a lot of soul searching and uh, navel gazing and head scratching about the way the war was conducted and the way it ended. And the hardest place has an awful lot of answers, I think. Um, or if it doesn't provide answers, it certainly provides a lot of data points that need to be reconciled if you're going to find an answer for yourself. 
Uh, I won't give too many spoilers about what those are. We'll talk about them at length in the episode, but it is a, it's, it, as I say to Wes in the episode, it, it's a, it's an adult conversation that you end up having with yourself. I think after reading the hardest place, it was one of those books that had me muttering to myself in the mirror, uh, wrestling with different ideas about how the war was conducted, how it could have been conducted, um, prescriptive ways that potentially, you know, we could have, you know, dodged a few landmines to coin a phrase. So, uh, and what I, what I appreciated with Wes and what I think anyone reading the book will come out of it with is an understanding that, that Wes didn't write this as kind of a, a helicopter journalist. He didn't just chop her in, write a book and leave, you know, he embedded in, uh, 2010 and that was the start of the book and the book goes on until 2019 and just got published last year. So you're looking at about a decade more or less of interviews, I mean, hundreds of interviews with everyone from Stan McChrystal to, you know, boots on the ground that he was embedded with. Um, so a decade of, of interviews, research, and and context, being able to see how the Afghan war was playing out. And, um, you know, Wes kind of did himself the favor of writing the first draft of history, but keeping it as a draft and, and then going back and, uh, you know, building on it and, um you know, following the wars that developed and seeing how that evolved. And as a result, what comes out is a very comprehensive look at admittedly a very um, narrow slice of the Afghanistan war, Pesh Valley, Kunar, Kunar province, um, but a very significant one, one of the most kinetic areas in the country. And um, certainly one that is a bit of a microcosm for issues that were faced throughout the Afghanistan theater of operations. Um, so not an apples to apples comparison with other provinces necessarily, but um, a, an awful lot of, uh, but still the Venn diagram overlap of what was going on in Kunar and what was going on elsewhere is significant enough that anyone uh, I think can, that was in Afghanistan can relate and find value in what West talks about. And I love that in the episode, he says, even, <clears throat> even Vietnam vets, uh, you know, have read the book and gone, boy, this helped me unpack my year in Vietnam. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, the lessons of counterinsurgency and the tension between counterinsurgency and counterterror, uh, and what that means for the individual soldier and for the country for its, uh, general war fighting strategy is, uh, is significant. So great book that I couldn't recommend more highly. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Wesley Morgan's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Wes. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It is Wes, isn't it? I mean, I I assume that you'll go by Wesley. I I, I go by Wes, yeah. Okay. All right. I I just kind of assumed that. And then I was like, that might be presumptive of me, but yeah, no. <laughs> um, so listen, I, I wanted to get you on the show uh, because I think, and maybe you know better than I do, but I think your book might be the definitive history as we have right now of the war in Afghanistan. Or do you have, is that been your take? Has that been the feedback that you've received that you're kind of, because it wasn't really the first draft of history it was the first draft. And then multiple edits and revisions over the course of like 11 more years, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's been getting really good feedback. Um, I think it's sort of there's lucky timing in that it came out at a time where 
Um, it actually kind of is the first the first book to cover sort of the full scope of the 20 years. And I've actually got the paperback is coming out in a few weeks and it has an updated epilogue that kind of reflects the final few months um, after the after the book came out in March. Um, but yeah, I mean, the approach that I took was um, I didn't feel like I could write sort of a, a, a history of the whole war. Um, I think there's probably a very small number of people who are qualified to do that, including um, Carter Malkasian has written a book called the, uh, you know, the American War in Afghanistan that is much more, it's sort of, it's both, it, it both goes through the whole time and it covers the whole country the whole time. Um, when I was, you know, thinking about a book, um, I initially, I just, um, I just thought the Pesh was interesting for a variety of reasons. And then it kind of grew into, okay, um, you can, you can use this approach by zooming in on one narrow area that represents kind of a microcosm of a lot of the bigger themes right. and threads of the war, not all of them, but a lot of them, um, to, to kind of more thoroughly tell the story of the way the war was fought. And that that's exactly what comes across. And I should clarify that. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're focused in Kunar and Eastern Afghanistan, um, but exactly a microcosm of so many issues throughout the war. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about just the origin of that. So I was intrigued by a couple of things. One, you were 22 when you first went to Afghanistan, which you bring up in the book is notable <laughs> for several reasons. You know, one of which that you're the same age as a lot of the guys that are over there right then. Just talk about that for a second. What was that like for you? Um, and I'm going to, you know, I don't say this would be demeaning, but was there any sense of guilt of like, wait, you guys are doing the fighting and I'm over here writing, but we're all the same age or was there any weirdness like that? Or was it? Yeah, sure. No. Um, yeah. So I actually, I actually started doing this when I was 19. It was when I first went to Iraq. Um, so this, the Pesh Valley trip in 2010 was like my third trip. Um, and it's funny. Wow. I think about it now. I'm like, you know, I see the news about, I see photos and video of guys being deployed to uh, Poland and, and Romania. And I'm like, wow, those soldiers are so young. Like that doesn't, that's not how it used to be. They used to be my age, like normal age. You know, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I was in college at the time. I was, um, I actually, when I started college, my sort of my plan was, I was like, okay, really interested in these wars. Um, how do you get into those? Um, the way that seemed kind of like the the tried and true and trodden path from my perspective was like join ROTC and become an army officer. So that was kind of my plan going into college. Mm. And I started ROTC, but then I had this weird opportunity come up um, basically, you know, the summer after my freshman year. Um, to start going and freelancing in Iraq. Uh, and while I was there, I met, um, re, you know, real war correspondents who knew what they were doing um, and kind of was uh, like Evan Wright, who wrote Generation Kill, sure. yeah. a good friend of mine, uh, Michael Gordon, who wrote Cobra 2 and who I later worked for on his book, The End Game. And he's got a new book about the war on ISIS coming out um, and just was really fascinated by what they did and, you know, just kind of latched on like, yeah, this is what I want to do. I mean, I, I it's not that I... I I was fascinated by these wars, like since I was a kid, um, did not feel any sort of particular drive to participate in them. I mean, I always was like a military history nut, kind of thought I would be a like medieval historian or something until huh. until, um, you know, kind of the, the, the wars focused my attention uh, when I was in high school. What college were you at? I went to Princeton. What, what was it something about their the the classes you were taking there or something like that that made you at 19 then start to go out and push out and get to the front lines um i had a strange opportunity i mean um i i was very i was kind of obsessed with the wars you know at that point just reading tons of news coverage of them this was at the height of the embedded era so you could really right. um 
uh, you know, 2004, five, six, seven, there were tons of American and European and other uh, correspondents out embedded with all kinds of U.S. units. Basically, all the combat units except the JSOC task force pretty much were, right. you know, had had embedded reporters with them a lot of the time. And so you could follow kind of a lot of what was going on. You could, I used to keep these maps up um, that would, you know, where I keep track of where every combat arms battalion in the country was just to try and figure out what was going on. Um, and then while I was a, a freshman in college, I, I interviewed um, David Petraeus for my school newspaper before he was, you know, when he was a three-star at, at Fort Leavenworth, because um, he's a, he got his Princeton PhD. He's very, you know, has a lot of loyalty for the school. And then um, I, I got an email from him out of the blue um, in the middle of my freshman year after he took command of the surge in Iraq saying, uh, basically saying, hey, Wes, what are you doing for the summer? You want to come cover the surge for the Daily Princetonian? Um, and I was like, well, that's an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah. So I went over, you know, initially having no real expectations of thinking like, oh, they'll probably just keep me in the green zone. Like, um, but this was, you know, summer of the surge, um, it was the largest kind of number of embedded media, um, with MNFI since the initial invasion in 2003. Um, and they pretty much were just like, okay, reporters, a reporter, um, you know, what units do you want to embed with? Um, and so did you I know just, enough? Did you know enough to specify? Did you know enough like about? I did. The I mean, I definitely? still, you know, at this point, I had been doing the thing with my maps and my little pins on the maps and reading all the. So, oh, I so you were doing that in college. Oh, I thought you were doing that even as that oh, wow. when I was like in high school before I'd ever been to Iraq. That was kind of my initial. Um, oh, you were really nerding out on. I was keep, keep it to yeah, was, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's pretty great. obsessive about something that I'm interested in. So yeah. Um, um, I kind of had this, you know, 30,000 foot view of like, okay, all the different battalions and brigades are where now I want to see what that means. Um, and so, yeah, my first Iraq trip, um, it was kind of mostly, it was mostly in and around Baghdad, Baghdad and what they called the belts, the rural areas around Baghdad that were kind of like AQI's support zones. Um, so it was like, it was a fairly short trip. It was like five weeks, something like that. Um, but I got a kind of a flavor of a few different units. You know, there was a striker cavalry squadron that was kind of downtown Baghdad, Haifa Street, um, spent some time with them, spent some time with another striker battalion that was up in the rural belts to the north. Um, uh, and it, yeah, and there's a, an infantry battalion in West Rashid, which was sort of like mm. a sectarian violence fault line. Um, and then uh, when I was back in school the following year, um, Michael Gordon, who was at the time, um, the New York Times is like sort of not their only Iraq correspondent, but the guy who was most focused on the U.S. military aspect of Iraq. Um, and he had written this book, Cobra Two, about the invasion of Iraq that I'd really liked. I'd met I'd met him kind of randomly at a at a, at a fob south of Baghdad uh, that summer. Um, and he contacted me. He said, hey, um, do you want to, like, take some time off school and, and work as a research assistant on this new Iraq book that I'm that I'm putting together? Um, and I was like, sure. Um, so I wound up taking a year off of school. Uh, spending like half of it in in Iraq, going back in in 08, uh, latter half of 08, uh, and then um, starting starting out with Afghanistan in the spring of 09 for the first time. Yeah, that was your first time in Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah, and so then the first, and I didn't go to Kunar that trip. Um, That trip was Wardak, uh, Kandahar, Helmand. Um, So then it was the following summer, summer of the summer of the big surge in Afghanistan, 2010, um, that I wound up in Kunar and in the Pesh Valley um, and just kind of got totally hooked on that place. What was the focus on that very first trip to Afghanistan when you were going to those other areas? 
Sure. I mean, so the first, the, the 2009 trip, I kind of was like, you know, I had done, I had spent some, some good time in Iraq at that point, um, bouncing around with different, with all kinds of different infantry and cavalry units. So I was like, okay, I want to see some advisor units, um, mm-hmm. 2009 okay. Afghanistan trip. So it was like, I spent part of it, um, with some green beret units that were in, um, that were in Wardak, um, doing kind of a, what was called the AP three at the time. Uh, it was sort of a proto, uh, Afghan local police. Um, uh, actually the, the company commander was, um, a guy named Brad Moses who went on to become, you know, kind of notorious during the Tongo Tongo affair, because he was the third special forces group commander for all that who evaded, evaded punishment. Um, and then another part of it was I went down to Helmand, um, to Lashkar Gah, where there was a, um, so it used to be back, you know, before there were tons of conventional forces in Afghanistan, basically there were like, there were two and then three infantry brigades in Afghanistan. There would be, you know, one of them had the Northern part of RC East. Another one had the Southern part of RC East. And then there was a national guard brigade that did, um, it was called task force Phoenix that did countrywide sourced advisor teams for the Afghan army and the Afghan police. Um, and that was what I was interested in. And so I went and spent some time with this Illinois national guard advisor team in Helmand. They were kind of living by the seat of their pants, shoestring logistics, way far out from any other Americans, um, but co-located with the Brits. And so the Brits kind of would help them out. The Brits had given them like half a platoon of Gurkhas to kind of bulk up their numbers so they could so they could get around out in the places that they were trying to go. Nadia Ali, Marja, um, where they were visiting these little police outposts. Um, and yeah, it was it was a fascinating kind of glimpse of another another side of the military besides the sort of you know active duty combat arms infantry armor um, that yeah. I had seen up until that point. Um, one of the many reasons I liked your book was that uh, as a guardsman, as a former guardsman, um, y- your your book front loads a lot of uh, a lot of National Guard soft um, sure. stuff, and and I that meant a lot to me as a, since I was in guard soft and that was, um, I, I guess, well, let me not steal your thunder. Why don't you tell everybody what, what was it that you noticed that was different about the national guard? Was it just the mission set? Cause in the book, you definitely start to go into the personality types, the life experience, the sure. age, all that. Yeah. I mean, as far as the mission set, I mean, the, the, you know, the big story of the last 20 years, I mean, there had been points when the guard has been put in like, okay, it's the national guard. We'll put them in sort of more of a sec four role or something, but there were major, but there were large chunks of the war when they were used completely interchangeably with the active duty force. Um, you know, and that was, you know, like these, these national guard advisor teams down in Helmand, you know, they wound up being replaced by uh, guys from the 82nd airborne who probably were really less qualified for that mission in some ways because um, these Illinois guard guys down in Helmand, I mean, they were older. They were all like cops and prison guards and stuff like that. Like they just, there was some other, there was some stuff that made them, gave them a a better affinity and aptitude, I think, for that mission of, you know, training Afghan police and working with Afghan police um, probably than, you know, younger 82nd Airborne paratroopers um, wound up having. And so that that theme, I think, carries over a little bit into what I describe in its chapter three of the book. So I'll set the context here a little bit, which is that, um, you know, U.S. forces started showing up in Kunar and the Pesh in 2002. Um, they were trying to, you know, JSOC and the CIA were trying to figure out where bin Laden had gone after Tora Bora. Um, and so they, they initially build a base called, um, you know, it, it becomes known as Camp Wright or Abad, south of Asadabad. Um and kind of work from there, sending little teams out into the valleys, trying to figure out where Bin Laden went. Um, they don't they don't pick up the trail. 
Um, in the fall of 2003, JSOC does a big push called Operation Winter Strike, um, in which basically half the Ranger Regiment, um, you know, the bulk of 175 and 275, um, surge up into um, into the Pesh and into very remote valleys north of the Pesh. Um, again, trying to pick up Bin Laden's trail. Um, doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, kind of, I think kind of right. predictably in retrospect, because they barely have interpreters. Like, you know, what, what are they going to do? Um, but But that was the idea. And um, the upshot of Operation Winter Strike is a couple of things. Um, one, there's a ranger is killed, um, Sergeant Jay Blessing, uh, the, the first uh, the first member of Second Ranger Battalion to be killed in the War on Terror. Um, and also, there's a little staging base that the rangers just called HLZ One um, up at the town of Nangalam, which is the biggest town in the Pesh Valley. If you go up the river from from Asad, up the Pesh River from Asadabad, um, so this place gets established. HLZ One, there are Tenth Mountain guys there. They call it Firebase Catamount. Um, but all the Tenth Mountain guys and all the rangers go away at the end of Winter Strike. Um, and basically, the the Green Beret headquarters at Bagram raises its hand and says, "Oh, we'll take that place over." Um, and so a Green Beret team winds up there, the first of a succession of Green Beret teams. And so what chapter three of the book is about is it kind of compares um, the experiences of two different Green Beret teams that lived at what was named Fob Blessing after Jay Blessing um, in the course of the year 2004. And basically you have these two teams that on paper look identical. You know, yeah. maybe one has one more guy or one less guy or something, but these are two ODAs. Um, but one of them is from 19th group from Utah, a National Guard team. And one of them is an active duty uh, third group team from Fort Bragg. And they really could not have taken more different approaches um, to the Pesh Valley. Um, really, the, um, you know, the 19th group guys, it's their first it's their first trip uh, post 9-11. Um, but they're sort of a, a mature and experienced team. They're older guys. I mean, they, most of them had been uh, most, if not all of them, had been active duty Green Berets previously. Right. You know, there's a guy on the team who had had experience with like the backpack nuke mission in the 80s. Right. Um, that, was a fun, that was a fun line when uh, you said that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, there are guys on the team who are like, there's a platinum miner in regular life. There's a, you know, like a cardiac nerd. Like they just, you know, a wide range of kind of civilian um, skills. Um, and I think there's sort of the age that they have and kind of the patience that they have. And they're really not like, they, one thing that they don't do is sort of go chasing chasing firefights. I mean, you know, they, they're not afraid of firefights when they ha when they happen. Um, but in particular, what they don't do is they don't mess around with the Corongal Valley um, because the the team commander and the team intel sergeant uh, they kind of I think correctly um, make the judgment that okay, we're being told that there's enemy up in the Corongal Valley. But it seems like there's something complicated going on there. We may be being, you know, used for, you know, to settle disputes or grudges has something to do with the timber. You know, it's it's, it's this it's this the yeah. logging hub. The our sources who are the Safi Pashtuns down on the valley floor um, are obviously like in some kind of antagonistic relationship with the Korangalis over this timber. Let's just let's just like not do that. Um, you know, and as the team commander told me, he was like, yeah, they they weren't they weren't coming out and messing with us. Uh, it, it didn't seem like it was worth whatever we were going to complicate ourselves in. Um, you know, another thing I think that's notable about these Green Berets from, uh, it was ODA 936 uh, from, from 19th group is they're all from Utah. A lot of them are Mormons. Um, and um, a lot of people in the Pesh Valley uh, actually remember these guys pretty fondly. Um, they remember that they were polite. Um, they remember that they, uh, that they were not super aggressive. Uh, they didn't. They didn't drink. Um, they yeah. didn't curse. I mean, a drink. You know, th these may, may sound like not huge deal things, but like 
you know, even if you're even if you're just drinking in the in the private confines of your team house on your base, like that, it gets out to the local population. Right. I mean, that's a scandalous thing in the context of sure. rural Afghanistan um, that people talk about it. You know, um, so, so Wes, let, let me let me unpack some of this because um, that was the part of the book that started to light me up when you started to compare those teams. I was like, oh man, you are touching on so many excellent and worthy subjects there. And one of them, and I want to bounce this off you. Did you ever read Afghanistan by Thomas Barfield? Did you ever read that book? I've read parts of it. I've never read the full book. So I know in it, he mentions that he thought Afghanistan, uh, you know, and he was, uh, for those that don't know the book, I mean, he'd been through Afghanistan multiple times uh, in the seventies, really. And he wasn't there so much um, after nine 11, but as an anthropologist and with that point of view, what he had said is the most effective form of government he had seen in Afghanistan was what he called the Swiss cheese version versus the American cheese version. And he said, and have you heard this? Have you, am I? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, go, and, go ahead. And so just so everybody's clear um, what I'm talking about, what he said is if you have for most of us in the Western world and even not in the Western world, we think of a country as a nation state with defined boundaries and the government operates like a piece of American cheese. It covers the entire country, but within those borders, he said, but in Afghanistan's history, what had led to almost a hundred years of relative peace um, earlier in the century before uh, the communist coup in the seventies was um, treating it like a Swiss cheese version of government where the government, the central government carved out pockets um, around the mountainous areas and said, look, you guys are kind of like what 19th group did, you know, or 936 did to say, Hey, you guys got your own thing going on. That's a little too much for us to chew right now. Just do your thing up there. We're not really going to touch you, but you're not really touching us either. And we're just going to carve out these little exceptions, these little um, circular vacancies inside the country and inside the political boundaries. And that led to relative peace. So with that for everybody listening, just to clarify a way of possibly approaching centralized Afghan governance in your opinion now, with the benefit of hindsight and with all the research you've done, do you think that understanding that more would have been kind of a more key idea yeah, for us? Absolutely. Yeah. Understanding the kind of the history that these communities have with the Afghan government. You know, I'll give an example. Um, so, you know, what happens after that 19th group team goes home is third group team comes in. They're actually on their third combat rotation since 9-11, even though it's 2004. Um and they kind of, you know, they're not sponges, so to speak, uh, with regard to what the 19th group guys are telling them, because they kind of feel like we've been there, we've done that, we know what we're doing. Um, and they and they very much see their job as getting after the enemy. Um, and what winds up happening is they do, they kind of get sucked into the middle of this Korangal lumber war. And then from there, things snowball out of control. You know, over, over the subsequent years, you see, okay, now Marine rifle platoons are going into the Korangal and, and getting mixed up with this because the Green Beret teams have gone home and kind of left it in the hands of these Marines. And then it escalates to, you know, an, a series of infantry companies living in the, living in the Korangal Valley at what eventually is five outposts in the Korangal Valley. Um, and the Korangal becomes kind of this, this arena in which two outside groups that have been brought in as muscle in a timber dispute, the Taliban on the Korangali side and the you know, Americans on the side of the, the Korangali's uh, you know, business partners, basically, yeah. um, 
are, are duking it out in this arena in, with increasingly high stakes um, and high high emotions as, as losses accumulate. Um, you know, but from an American perspective, you know, you, you get these infantry battalions that are living up in this place in the Pesh Valley. And they're fighting in places like the Weigal and the Korangal. And I think often the analogy that resonates most, um, you know, with guys uh, when they kind of got what was going on in the Korangal is like, we are like, if you came in an FBI jacket to like a town in Appalachia somewhere, like yeah. it's just not, you know, th- th- these are mountain people who want to be left alone, basically, as one is one Marine battalion commander put it to me who was who was involved up there. Um, but there are a lot of subtleties to these relationships with, uh, you know, the relationships between these people and the central government. And an example is um, there are these two valleys on opposite sides of the Pesh, the Korangal and the Weigel. They kind of are like for the early, early years of the war. These are the main two tributaries that are dominating you know, U.S. attention up in this part of the country. One rifle company in the Weigall, one rifle company in the Korangal. They both are in really, really tough fights and take really heavy losses, um, but with kind of different flavors. Um, and, um, you know, from the perspective of these infantry companies living there and fighting there, they both just kind of seem like uh, these people hate outsiders. They don't want anything to do with the government. What are we doing here? Um you know, but there's but there are there are nuances to that relationship. And 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 these come up in the context of civilian casualties. Um, basically, if you mistakenly kill a bunch of civilians in the Korangal, which happens repeatedly in the course of firefights, in the course sure. of doing high value targets, you know, AC-130 strike, uh, B-1 strike, um, you you are what ha- I mean, the Korangal, you, you worsen your relationship with the Korangal, obviously. Sure. But what doesn't happen so much with the Korangal is you don't get uh, phones ringing off the hook in Kabul when there's a Sivkaz incident and the, and the Afghan government right. getting getting heavily involved in it. It's kind of just like, well, their mountain people are on the side of the Taliban. Kabul doesn't make a big deal. The Karzai government doesn't make a big deal when these things happen in the Korangal. In the Weigal, pretty much, you know, and, and there's a series of these, you know, equally tragic, in some cases, kind of worse um, incidents in the Weigal uh, over the years. Um and when one of those happens, it's immediately a huge thing with the Karzai government. Um, and there's the context here um, that U.S. troops just didn't really appreciate um, has to do with the way in which uh, the Weigal, which is uh, part of Nuristan province and inhabited by a, a, a Nuristani people who speak under one of the five or six Nuristani languages, how they were incorporated into the Afghan state um, in, in the 1890s and the early 1900s after they were conquered. I mean, basically these, these were people who they were not Islamic, um, until they were sort of forcibly converted at the point of the sword or the point of the rifle, um, start, starting in, in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, and basically the, when the, when that, when the Afghan crown, the Afghan, the, you know, the kingdom of Afghanistan conquered the Weigal Valley, it cut a deal wherein, um, in order to avoid kind of like a bloody conquest, uh, and negotiate a surrender and a conversion. Um, they took a bunch of hostages, basically, you know, Waigali children, uh, and took them back to Kabul. Uh, and they were they sort of um, became uh, like courtiers. They became, you know, the, uh, the the girls were incorporated into the king's harem, basically, uh, and the boys uh, became civil servants and military officers and so on. And some of them rose to very high positions, you know, mayor of Kabul, general in the early Afghan Air Force, uh, this kind of thing. So uh, and and kind of the, the flip side of this bargain was, OK, so if you have this relationship with the central government, we will not put like a district center up your ass who's going right. to be. So, so you will have this, you will pretty much be left alone 
but you have this relation, this kind of like direct relationship with Kabul. And that's something that, you know, didn't exist in the Coringal, for instance. Um, yeah. and, and U.S. troops didn't, didn't appreciate kind of the, the distinction there. And so this, this, you know, this accounts for basically why whenever there was, you know, a, a tragedy that happened in the Weigall, that became a, a national a national issue right. because there is this historic relationship um, between the Waigali community and Kabul. Um, and, you know, the fact that there still were, you know, there still are a, lo- a lot of sort of prominent Nuristanis and Waigalis, uh, you know, who live in Kabul, who, who are part of sort of the Afghan elite in a sense, um, whereas the, the Korangal really is just very, very, very disconnected from the rest of Afghanistan. But on the surface, they both just looked like these are right. kind of mobility communities that want nothing to do with anybody. So one of the major takeaways that I had was, um, or one of the major footstops that that reinforced something I thought was um, when you talk about the difference between Jim Gant's team and Ron Fry's team, uh, nine three six, and the third group team, and their difference in approaches, it's a good reminder of how personality based coin operations are. So I'm just going to ask you flat out, and obviously. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to put you on the spot for doctrinal answers. Is coin scalable? I would say no. Um, I mean, that's my that's my overall impression. I mean, I think um, you know, a, a lot of us uh got kind of entranced by it in the in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, I think there's kind of a phenomenon that would happen where you know, in a given battalion, there might be one platoon leader or company commander who just really got it. It wasn't that he had been you know, trained so well in coin or that he had read the manual really thoroughly. It was that his personality just was on the right wavelength where he um, not only was really good at kind of the the kinetic aspect, um, you know, and kind of keeping the enemy up in the hills, but also just clicked with village elders, clicked with little kids. um, And, you know, it it wasn't a chore for him to learn all the names of all the village elders and to kind of understand the nuances of, you know, how to pronounce them and what they... uh, and a, and a guy like that who really got it, I mean, obviously it was worth his weight in gold, but also there's a phenomenon where, okay, then a visiting reporter or a visiting general comes and, and embeds with the battalion, or in the case of the general, just kind of stops by for a day, whatever. Uh, who is the battalion commander going to show them? Um, you know, you're going to show them that, you know, Mike Harrison, the platoon leader at, uh, at, at patrol base in California, who really gets it. You're going to show him Rob Stanton, the company commander who really gets it. Um, so I think th- there's, a, I think I think there was an impression um, that people, including kind of top generals, got that this was more doable than it was um, because you focused on the guys who really got it and were when we're kind of like amazing at it. And there's just was no way to replicate them. <laughs> right. hundred I mean, yeah. percent. You know, yeah. especially once you get into the realm of like, OK, we've got. Uh, you know, we've got 15 brigade combat teams in Iraq or 20, I think, at the height of the surge. And, yep. you know, every one of them has however many subordinate battalions and every one of them has however many subordinate rifle companies. And what proportion of those guys do you want to be kind of these like um, sort of guys who embody both like the the earnestness of a Peace Corps volunteer and the uh, as well as like the ruthlessness that's necessary for sustained combat? Like that's a rare person, well, which um, is supposed to be SF. I mean, that's and, and sure. you point that out, like the difference between JSOC. And your tier two guys and how those guys are supposed to be your force multipliers, your jungle diplomats, that kind of thing. Right. Exactly. That, you know, even between that, <laughs> that, you know, there's, there's SF a, there's and there's a SF. Quote that, quote that I use, I'm actually going to pull it up real quick, but there's a, um, a quote that I use in chapter three, you know, about these two Green Beret teams. It's actually from a French general in the late 1800s where he kind of describes, he's talking about this in the context of Madagascar. 
Um, he's, he's uh, you know, they're kind of quelling, uh, uh, and it's in the context of colonial operations too, which is kind of not, it not, doesn't wind up being a direct transfer the way, the way a lot of people uh, think it is. But um, let's see, where is this? Yeah, so there's a this this the sort of the French origin the guy who invented the the phrase ink blot or or oil spot right. um this French general described it as uh, pacification not by mighty blows but as a patch of oil spreads through a step by step progression playing alternately on all the local elements utilizing the divisions uh, between tribes and between their chiefs uh, and then at, at another point he describes kind of the qualities that that the ideal commander um, you know for this embodies. Um, and they are ones that the 19th group team captain and his guys kind of really do embody. But the third group team, oh yeah, here it is. Um, uh, initiative, uh, yeah, initiative, intelligence, and energy. You know, both teams had plenty of that. Sure. Um, but then the other qualities that this French general described were prudence, calm, and, and perspicacity. Um, and uh, those were, I think, a little more in short supply in the in the in the third group team that was kind of younger and more trying to get after it. Um, so yeah, yeah. So I, you, you kind of can't help when you're talking about stuff like that. Then the, you can't help starting to get prescriptive and figuring out, okay, well, how does one do this? And here's my beef in general with a lot of books that um, talk about American military missteps is that sometimes it, it feels like, and this is my personal psychological hangup. So not not a ding on anybody else, but I always feel like, look. Um, there hasn't yet to be a war that has been fought perfectly from day one. And often it's a football game and that first half is going to be a mess. And the yep. second half adjustments that has those halftime adjustments that make the difference. Certainly Afghanistan is no different. Um, but let's be a little prescriptive. If you're George Bush, is there something you can do at your level or to, to fix this from day one and make this a better setup for success? Or is it really just, so personality based, so granular that this is something that has to be done on a much lower level. And it's just about picking the right talent for the right job. And I think it comes down to what the actual objectives are. Right. I mean, and that's where, you know, President Bush, President Obama, that's where they were making decisions um, is kind of what are we trying to accomplish here? Um, and I mean, sort of the it's the, the counterfactual that it's really tempting to engage with, I think, is what if the United States had just pulled up stakes, just gone out of there after, you know, after Tora Bora? Um, yeah, you know, sort of, we, we've done our, we've, we've, we've driven Al Qaeda out. We've knocked the Taliban regime out. I mean, yeah. just leave. Um, and I think it's, it's basically an impossible counterfactual. I mean, without having killed bin Laden and without right. knowing what had happened to bin Laden, it was not possible for, for the Bush administration to do that. It's just not within the realm of, of anything that they had the, the political capital to do, or that would have made sense to do. I mean, the other the other um, the other one I think that gets a lot of engagement is, well, what if the Taliban had kind of been engaged and brought into government at that point, December 2001, when they were at their lowest ebb, they had no negotiating power. um, They were just down and out. And they did they you know, they did want to kind of be brought in and to participate. And I think um, you potentially could have gotten a better outcome and a better form of this kind of like Swiss cheese government. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if you had not shut out this, um, you know, this whole segment that in some ways spoke for a large section of, you know, rural Pashtun society, especially in the South, not really in Kunar and Nurst. I mean, the Taliban right. were not up yet at that point. Right. Um, but again, this is hindsight. It's, um, I mean, you know, what, is that something the American people would have swallowed in, in December, 2001, January, 2002? Like it's a bit, that would be a big ask. Yeah, it definitely would be. I, it's hard for me now. Um, 
to talk with different people um, because it, it seems like so many people's um, points of view depends on when they were there. Do sure, you absolutely. notice that? Because you were, I mean, you cover this from 2010 right up till 2019. Um, did you notice a shift, not just in American military perspectives, but also in how the Afghan military and personalities were evolving and changing and becoming, you know, kind of reading us better and fitting in better with us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you saw it, you know, every year was different and every place was different. Um, and, and, you know, the context that you served in very different. Right. So like, you know, a, a guy who, um, you know, a guy who was a ranger and worked with the Catejas um, or a Green Beret and worked with the ANA commandos, is going to have a really different perception of the Afghan security forces and their viability um, than, you know, conventional guys who had some kind of ragtag police that they dealt with. Right. Um, and, and that's true, I think, kind of throughout the, the you know, the throughout the whole period of the enterprise. But I think that divergence becomes more stark in the later years when, um, you know, there's this huge structure of various, you know, supposedly elite Afghan units that kind of can carry their weight to a degree. Um, but even their existence is kind of sucking all the talent up and away out of the, the broader um, structure of the Afghan security forces and making them this kind of very hollow, brittle force um, uh, where, you know, so depending on which of those two Afghan armies you're exposed to, I think you would have a really different uh, perception of the viability of not only the Afghan army, but kind of the Afghan state. I want to pick up on one thing that you bring up in the book and you said here, which is the idea of why we were there. What's the mission? What are we trying to do? And I've heard that a lot from people. For me, I never, that was never. So I guess there's two ways of interpreting that question. It, it, let me just finish my sentence. There, that was never a concern of mine. Um, I was very clear as to why we were there personally. Um, but I feel like that's kind of the the larger philosophical question. The why we were there as to why we might be in Korangal or why we might be in Pesh or why we might be in Kunar or, you know, those kind of questions, I think, are very viable. Do you agree with that? Do Were you, in your mind, do you think it was very clear as to why the United States itself needed to be there? And it was more of a lower level, okay, well, maybe tactically, strategically, why are we in these different areas? Or was it all, hey, look, this whole thing is a debacle? From top to I mean, bottom. I think it is conceptually clear that, I mean, you know, people say, oh, there was no strategy. What was the strategy? I mean, I think in some ways there was a very clear strategy from the get go, which was um, we are here to create a uh, an Afghan state in which it's not viable for Al Qaeda uh, to have sanctuary again, like it had before mm -hmm. 9 11. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how you measure when you've reached that point, um, right. how does it play in the fact that to some degree, Al-Qaeda always did have sanctuary the entire 20 years uh, to some extent up in Kunar and Nuristan. Um, but I think, you know, what people get to when people are, I think, often mean when they ask this kind of like, well, what were we doing there is I think there often was a really big tension between um, the, the counterterrorism mission and the kind of counterinsurgency nation building mission, even though they can be in support of each other. And, and the bigger picture is, okay, the, the nation building and the counterinsurgency are supposed to be in support of the counterterrorism mission, but they very often were in conflict. Um, and this can range from, I mean, I'll give a few examples. Um, you know, one is just geographical focus. I mean, if you look at the surge years, 2009, 2010, uh, when President Obama, um, you know, committed to the surge when he came into office, um, Basically, he, you know, the, the rhetoric that he used was the same rhetoric as after 9-11. We're doing this to prevent uh, Al-Qaeda from having a safe haven. And yet 
where all the surge forces focused and all the surge tactics focused uh, was southern Afghanistan, uh, which was the Taliban, you know, the, the, the Taliban center of gravity, but not the Al Qaeda center of gravity. And, and in order to resource the the surge mission, um, actually forces were removed from uh, places like the Korangal, um, where, you know, the, the Al Qaeda guys actually were. So I think there's, you know, and the book gets into the nuances of why that was. And, you know, were those guys up in the places like the Pesh and the Korangal actually achieving anything against Al Qaeda or were, you know, were, was Al Qaeda right. kind of running circles around them just outside of their, right. uh, outside of their, their range. Um, but that's, a, that's, a, I mean, that's a clear point of tension in the surge, you know, um, supposedly big picture is Al Qaeda, but then the whole surge is focused on RC South. Um, so that's one example. I mean, another example is, um, you know, between the CIA mission and the military mission, the CIA always had these what they called the CTPTs, the counterterrorism pursuit teams, which were their, Af- their Afghan surrogate forces that existed outside the formal structure of the Afghan government. And really, I mean, at every moment that those CTPTs existed, they were in some way undermining the Afghan state. You know, they were they were they were day by day. They were a, a, an effective tool for counterterrorism. But they were um, almost, you know, just their existence and their behavior um, uh, was not in service of the the, the counterinsurgency and nation building mission. Um, and then a third one, you know, that I get into kind of throughout the book is you get this tension between, um, you know, the direct action raiding force guys and their their behavior on objective and what they're doing. The, the SEAL Team Six guys, the Rangers, sure. um, and the and the guys who live there, the infantry guys, you know, who are the battle space yeah. hunters. The, the lingo. And there is this there is this re- recurring tension of, you know, the task force guys coming in the middle of the night, kill or capture a bunch of people. And then the infantry company commander, you know, kind of has to walk over there in the morning, not really knowing what's going on and explain what happened. We yeah. Know yeah. Itself, right. Yeah. Um, and this is something that kind of it, it gets resolved to some degree over the years um, uh, as the bad experiences accumulate. I mean, there's a there's just so many examples of it. There's um, you know the task force went by all these different code numbers, right? At one point for a couple of years it was task force three seven three, and there's um there's a raid outside of Cop, Michigan that happens in the book uh, in which they you know un- unclear whether the Rangers actually get their man or not, but in the process they kill the old guy who was that the cook for the ANA on Cop, Michigan, and so the soldiers at Cop, Michigan they kind of like darkly joke that um oh we figured out what three seven three stands for. It's the three minutes it took the operators to kill everybody in the house. You know the 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 seven months of hard coin work that this undid and i guess generously the three years that this is going to take to kind of make things right with the um with the community now you know over time the task force gets better um especially under ranger, ranger leadership it sort of integrates better with the conventional forces but in so doing it kind of moves away from its own counterterrorism mission um and 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 becomes just sort of a the the you know playing offense for counterinsurgency um, but so that's that's another example of just this kind of inherent tension often between the, the coin and the CT missions. Well, and it's eloquently and, and uh, it's, you just verbalized it here. I mean, you eloquently portray that throughout the book. And it's it, not just convincing, but it's a great reminder to a lot of us that have forgotten, you know, all the granular details of <laughs> and now can pull back and go. Yeah, that's right. That didn't make a lot of sense. And 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 there was um, a lot of tension there. I want to throw um, my idea. Dia, or something I've kind of been wrestling with at you and bounce this off you and see what you think. Um, my sense of Afghanistan is it's the land of yes, uh, that yes is the answer to everything because it depends who's asking the questions. And in a country that's that leveraged, that's that used to being um, controlled, influenced, uh, nudged by its neighbors um, or by invading powers or what have you, 
they're incredibly adept and flexible and malleable to whoever's right in front of them. And you talk about this in the book about how, uh, you know, they'll, they'll kind of give you a couple of wrong answers before they finally get to a right answer. And they put up a fog of misinformation initially. Um, it seems that to me in Afghanistan, there's very few that who will remain either resolutely good or resolutely bad, but that everybody in all situations, it seems like a bulk of the people, and this is probably true for the world, but certainly right. Afghanistan just is a very a visceral demonstration of this. The bulk of the people will flex depending on who's in front of them um, and who seems to be the power there. So it seems like strength or the projection of strength is what ultimately would make people, the bulk of the people respond. Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, do you, does that sort of make sense? Or do you think I'm missing that there's something else that's being missed there? Strength, I don't know. Is I would say that that's it. It's that it's kind of endurance. Uh, I mean, I mm-hmm. think uh, you know everybody's trying to survive, and you you live in a village. If you live in a village that's kind of um, uh, supposedly in the bubble of American protection, you know, outside of an outpost, yeah. but it's not actually right outside the outpost. You know, it's a little ways down the road, and you know the Americans come by once or twice a day, maybe or, or less than that. Uh, but they think of you as as you're you're sort of under their protection and you're in their ink blood and and you're supposed to be giving them intelligence and and and, and being you know cooperative good uh, good Afghans right. Um, but then the rest of the time, um, the Taliban are there. In fact, the Taliban are there when the Americans are there. Right. Um, right. You know. Uh, and then when the Americans are not there, then a you know, larger Taliban force comes down from the hills and talks to you and says, "Hey, what were you talking to those guys about?" Um, I love yeah. that answer. I love I love that answer. I think that's exactly the right word. And I'm going to sorry to interrupt, but I want to ask then a follow up based on that. To my to my mind, then we have two courses of action, either the incredibly light CT footprint uh, that tries to be as surgical as it can. Yep. But of course, that's to me, that's not the right answer, just because you don't have the intelligence assets out there. You don't have the breadth and the reach to actually know what to target. And you're too you reliant. You will hit. You will get target. misused. Yep. Yeah. So I always have thought that was a false choice, but I understand that in theory, that could be a COA, a course of action that somebody would, would want. The other yeah. one is to go the other way and to use your word to, to endure and to do the John McCain thing of, hey, who cares if we're here for a hundred years, as long as the fighting stops and that you double down. And if not, Swath the country with soldiers, at least have, you know, and you can do a Swiss cheese formation, but at least have, um, you know, enough breadth of presence and persistence of presence to let people know, hey, we're going to be here. We're not leaving. And so, so they understand we might have to sidle up to the Americans because they're not going anywhere and we right. can't and, and we might start to respect them as much as the Taliban. Does that make sense? Tell me how that strikes yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I don't think there's a good answer. I think neither neither end of the spectrum there is a good answer. I mean, the sort of oh, we can do the light footprint CT. We just go in and strike targets. I mean, it doesn't work because um, if you if you don't kind of if you don't live there to some degree, I mean, you are at the mercy of whoever it is that you're getting your intelligence from, um, which is a story that the book tells you know in a number of ways. But you you will be used to settle grudges. You will be used um, to you know, to to tip the balance in commercial disputes, you will be used everything from water rights to, you know, to familial feuds that go back, you know, a really yeah. long time. You will wind up being used to kill people in this context. You, the people that you think are your proxies and surrogates are using you as their proxy and surrogate. Right. 
Um, uh, and the other end, I mean, the idea, okay, what do you put 200,000 200, troops in Afghanistan or something, all these conventional infantrymen, um, what proportion of those are going to be that platoon leader that we talked about earlier or that right. company commander who, who gets it and who isn't making things worse with every, this is something that, um, you know, another counterfactual that I think people bring up is, um, that can be, that I think can be satisfying, uh, to some people is, oh, well, you know, we were distracted by the invasion of Iraq. What if we had, you know, what if we used all those, all that resources and all that willpower? What if we'd, we'd applied it in Afghanistan? To which I say, the, the, I think the, the relatively small number of, you know, Green Beret teams, um, you know, CIA paramilitary teams that were out there in 2002, 2003, 2004, who are, these are the guys who, who get it. They and their mistakes were enough to spark an insurgency. What would it have been like? If there were tens of thousands of paratroopers blundering around when there was no no real insurgency yet, I don't think you get a better outcome. Um, I mean, that, that's sort of that's my that's my impression. No, I I, I appreciate that. Um, I think I mean, I, I can. It's easy for me to sit here and pontificate and speculate, but I I feel like there would have been a way to do that and still carve out exceptions in a Swiss cheese sort of government, but. Look, it's all hypothetical, and I have no yeah. way of knowing. Maybe. I think there's there's a half life that foreign forces experience. Um, and and I'll, I'll give the example of civilian casualties. You know, in the context of the villages, you know, uh, ODA nine three six, they didn't do everything perfectly. It's not like they didn't make mistakes. Um, toward the end of that deployment, Ron Fry, the team commander, he killed a guy by mistake. Right. right. He, um, he was out on patrol. One of these big mangy dogs came at him. He shot the dog. Um, the round went through the dog, ricocheted off a rock. And, and hit a shopkeeper square in the forehead and killed him. And there were there were riots outside the fob. Um, you know, Ron thought, oh, that, you know, get, you know, jigs up or, you know, they're going to kick us out of this place. But no, uh, this was very early in the American experience. This is the spring of 2004. Um, people saw the potential. Um, they had a good relationship with this team uh, and the community smoothed it over. They helped, you know, obviously, the, the, I'm sure the family never got over it. Um, but they and he'd but, built up that reservoir of goodwill. Yeah, the right. capital the, that he could draw. The community from. helped. The community helped yeah. him figure out what the the socially appropriate way to right. kind of make amends for this was. Now, um, it's every every subsequent unit makes mistakes like that, right? And by 2010, when you've got a new unit rotating in and it makes a good faith mistake like that, people are a lot less willing to forgive and forget when it's like the tenth time this has happened in your village, right? And you know that it's going to happen again next year when a new unit rotates in. Uh, because those those first few weeks that that new unit is on the ground, they're pretty dangerous for that new unit. And as a result, they're pretty dangerous for everybody else, too. Um, so I think there is this there is this half life that happens where by the time you get into this 2009, 2010 period, you know, as, as one of the AWG advisors who, who spent a lot of time there and talked for the book, he's like, that's the point when there were the cold stares, you know, just people just looking at you blankly because they just they're just trying to minimize the amount that they have to deal with you, basically, because nothing good is going to come of it. Um, an example that I'll give um, is, you know, my, my first trip to the Passion in 2010, I remember being out with this um you know, a company commander in one of his platoons out west of Blessing, um, Reshalom, maybe I forget which. Oh no, Waradesh uh, was a town called Waradesh, um, and it was it was up a ways from the road. Um, and the you know um, kind of drive the trucks up there, uh, sit down for a meeting. Uh, you know, company commander takes his helmet off, sits down with uh, with the village elder, relatively young guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, wild turkeys running around. It's just just sort of a typical kind of outdoor little impromptu shura. 
But then um, one of the one of the young infantrymen on the perimeter, who's actually like a, a guy who joined the unit late, and um, it's his first patrol outside the wire. One of these big mangy dogs, just like with Ron Fry in 2004, comes at him. And just as the company commander is saying, like, throw a rock at it, um, the kid shoots the dog, which I think was a totally appropriate. I mean, you know, right. you don't want to get rabies from one of these things, right? right? Um, uh, but uh, the tenor of the conversation changes the, between the company commander and, and the Shura chief. Um, basically, the Shura chief uses this to extract concessions. He, you know, he, he literally says he, I mean, a very canny guy, um, but basically he says, oh my God, you killed my dog. It's not his dog. It's sort of the community's right. kind of, right. so it, it, the, but he said, oh, you killed my dog. I wish you'd, you'd killed my wife or my children instead of my dog. I love my dog so much. Um, uh, and he uses it as a negotiating point. Um, and he, you know, it's, and he, he winds up, he doesn't do it for money. I mean, he may get a salation payment or something out of it in the end too, but the, but the particular thing that he negotiates is when you come and visit here, you leave your trucks by the road. I don't want, I don't want these trucks seen in my village. Um, because I have to deal with the Taliban the rest of the time. Um, and I thought that was a really fascinating kind of example of, you know, the, 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 the dance that these people are doing, um, which can be really frustrating for American commanders who are kind of like, hey, my job here is to, you know, get people right. to commit to, to the right side. You know, um, Bill Ostland is one of the colonels in the book, and he, right. uh, you know, one of the battalion commanders. And in, in notes from his Shura meetings, I mean, he's just he's so persistent of like he's trying to get people off the fence and like onto the right side. And it's just never going to happen in that context. It's just not it's, it doesn't match the reality of these people's lives. So it's interesting. Um, I was there. Um, I, I left Afghanistan in October of 2020, um, and it was interesting. Then, obviously, the war had changed an awful lot. And you talk about um, the train advise and assist missions that were going on, and you know the way that the war was changing. But it was interesting to see. And I'll just give one data point of something I ran to. But the last FOB I was at um, in a rural part. Uh, near Logar Wardak, uh, Southern Kabul province, um, there was a house for sale that you could see online. And there was a bunch of houses that you could see online uh, and different Afghans that I knew is no American ever went close to those houses. No, ever, nobody ever inquired that was an American, but different Afghans that inquired said those houses were going for 120,000 US. And I was like, that is ludicrous and and the houses were nice they weren't janky they looked proper um yes they were close to afghan and nato forces um relatively um there everyone was acutely aware that the taliban was on the other side of the villages or what have you but um i was like just as one data point i thought that was interesting to show improvement in a, in a very measurable metric that hey after 20 years, people are feeling comfortable enough in this country to be putting those kind of dollars, attaching those kind of dollars to that real estate and to be building halfway decent real estate. Um, how do you reconcile that with how the American military, with the American military missteps? I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile that particular data point. I mean, there's I think in some ways there are well, there's there's a rural Afghanistan and urban Afghanistan. And then there's kind of a, an in-between Afghanistan that mm. exists you know, like along Highway 1, maybe. Right. Um um, but you know, what the war has been like for these two different Afghanistans, I think is really, really different. Um, yeah. you know, there's, there is a, there's a rural Afghanistan, you know, that's, I think on one end of the spectrum is exemplified by, um, districts like Sangin, um, where Anand Gopal wrote a really good New Yorker article about this recently about kind of, 
Um, in the context of a rural place like Sangin, which has just been absolutely hammered these 20 years, just endless fighting. The place yeah. is littered with IEDs. Um, it, you know, you get if you're if you're sort of in the wrong tribe, the kind of the Taliban affiliated tribe of the two tribes in the upper Sangin Valley, you were just constantly abused by government forces. Um, who are affiliated with the other tribe, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and for, for this version of Afghanistan, um, I, I think the the most recent developments, the fall of the fall of the government, um, yeah. are a relief. They are they are an end to sure. conflict. Um, and you know, for for a lot of these parts of Afghanistan, um, there you know the, the improvements were not as tangible. I mean, they were you know women still had to live inside. You know. Right. Um, there was, you know, limited, there's always Taliban pressure kind of preventing, you know, uh, but then, and then there's this urban Afghanistan. So, well, for that rural Afghanistan, in some ways, it's kind of like, well, things are just reverting to the way they were before. Just right. a lot of people died in the meantime. Right. Um, it, it, there's this urban Afghanistan that was completely transformed. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, like the, the city of Kabul, even smaller cities like Jalalabad. Uh, I mean, they they were they uh, I mean, w- one thing that strikes me when I think back on, you know, the times that I spent in Kabul kind of on my way to other places is just the sheer number of institutions of higher learning that were created. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just endless billboards for, you know, technical colleges and, and yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and so I think, you know, and this is a thing that in some ways, you know, Ashraf Ghani and General Nicholson were sort of hoping would be, OK, this is this is the hope of Afghanistan. It's like there is there are so many more educated people than there are, you know, economic opportunities for. Maybe we can get educated leaders in the security forces and that will kind of turn this thing around. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's this there is this there is this this version of Afghanistan and a generation of young Afghans. I mean, such a young country. Yeah. Um for whom the, the uh, you know, post 2001 period um, was transformational. Yeah. And, and now it's sort of, I don't want to say it's all been taken away. I mean, you think we're seeing what has been taken away and what hasn't, but certainly the future that they, um, that they were anticipating is not, is no longer their future. It, it seems like a good, um, yet another good uh justification for a Swiss cheese approach that to say, look, there's wildly different experiences and there therefore have to be wildly different expectations. It also points to the clarity or lack of clarity in the mission that you point out, because if our mission is initially, okay, disable an enemy that we believe could attack us in the imminent future. Cool. That's easy. That's a straightforward piece. Um, The nation building though, if that starts to focus instead on, Hey, let's simply deny the enemy's ability to ever reconstitute reform and, and just make this um, if not a safe haven, at least just deny an area of operations, training bases and all that. And even as late as the end of the war, that was being done. Uh, It was very hard for anybody to reconstitute a threat. Um, And even if you isolate those mountainous regions or Sangin or, you know, any other parts that are problematic, um, nobody was, it was, it was still very difficult because of drones, because of ISR and all the rest of it, still very difficult to launch any kind of attacks. I want to jump to the very end, and I know you're writing. You wrote about this in the epilogue of the soon-to-be-published paperback. But now, seeing how things have played out, um, I've spoken on the show before about my personal beliefs. So let me ask you yours: What do you think is going to be the second and third order effects of this pullout as far as it impacts us? 
I don't know. I mean, um, I, I don't think we have. It's just too soon to tell. I mean, what what will the what does the Taliban's relationship with Al Qaeda look like uh, in the future? What does Al Qaeda use Afghanistan for in the future? I mean, do people, do senior Al Qaeda leaders who have been outside of Afghanistan, do they return to Afghanistan? Um, I think we don't we don't know yet whether that's happening. Um, uh, you know, will they? What role will they play? I mean, will will they uh, will they you know try to resume planning major external operations from Afghanistan? Um, or, you know, or not. I mean, I I, I just don't know. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the presence of ISIS-K there is another, you know, such a, yeah. such a complicating factor as well. I mean, yeah. obviously, a group that didn't exist when we went in um, and a group that it's very controversial. I mean, what what is ISIS-K? I mean, there's almost two ISIS-Ks in a way. You know, I saw this put this way recently in a way that I think makes sense. There's kind of, you know, there is there is this high profile attack, you know, network. There's the ISIS-K that kills hundreds of people at a pop in Kabul, right? Uh, and then there's the ISIS-K that's sort of really the same old Kunari Salafi groups up in the hinterland who, you know, have previously allied themselves with, uh, you know, with the Taliban when they, it was convenient to do so to fight the United States. I mean, the Korangalis, for instance, I mean, they are, um, you know, they they really threw in their lot with ISIS-K um, uh, in, in a way that I think surprised some people but probably shouldn't have because they their relationship with the Taliban was only ever one of convenience. Um, and, I, and I think ISIS-K was in many ways more of an ideological fit. But nobody's saying, but there's no, no Korangali is, is, is planning an international terrorist attack, right? right. No evidence that, that, that any right. Korangali has ever been involved in anything like that. Um, so, you know, what, what is ISIS-K? Uh, who is it a threat to? Um, you know, this was something that the, that the military made some tough choices about in the final years there when it actually, um, at the same time that it was, you know, hammering the Taliban everywhere else in the country in, in the buildup to the Doha talks to kind of try and get the best deal out of them that it could, it, it, it's kind of, kind of embraced the Taliban as a surrogate against ISIS-K up in Kunar. Um, to the extent that you had, you know, at um at Team East in the in the JSOC task force uh, where they were running the kinetic strikes that were actually being done, you know, tacitly in support of the Taliban on the tactical level against ISIS K in the same old valleys, Korangal, Chaukay. Um, you know, Team East uh, jokingly called themselves the Taliban Air Force because they were they were essentially orchestrating battlefield air support for for the Taliban against ISIS K. Was that the right gamble? I mean. Does ISIS-K matter? I mean, in some sense, certainly it matters. Um, I mean, it's it's a group that has American blood on its hands. It, it, it killed 13 Americans uh, at, at Kabul airport this past August. But does it? And, it? and it's part of a broader caliphate that has orchestrated, you know, big international terrorist attacks. Is ISIS-K capable of that? I, it, and how does that play into then? Well, now you're you're going to you're going to sort of embrace the Taliban as the partner against ISIS-K. But the Taliban is still the the avowed ally of Al Qaeda. Um, which is, you know, which of these two is the is the one that you want to place your bets kind of more heavily against? I think is, is a really complicated question. Um, and I, I, one that there I think there were big divergences in the in the U.S. intelligence community and the military in the final years there about kind of like what is ISIS-K um, and, and how much does it matter? In your view, how big a role are the neighbors of Afghanistan to Afghanistan in determining what the future of Afghanistan is going to look like it, for us and how that's going to impact us? Yeah, um, I I, th- I feel like I'm not as qualified to speak on kind of like the the this kind of big picture geopolitical stuff. I've never been to Pakistan. Um, you know, my my view of my view of Pakistan and its role in Afghanistan is is probably you know very colored by um, by Afghans' perception of Pakistan, which is generally pretty hostile, right? Um, and I, I think Afghans do have a tendency to see Pakistan under every rock. Um, you know, I mean, there's so much of what happens in Afghanistan is. Um, you know, stuff that basically happens because of the ISI, the ISI supporting the Taliban, the ISI, 
you know, doing this or doing that, that Afghans can also have a tendency to blame everything on the ISI, right? Sure. Like say, oh, this attack was, this was all because of the Pakistan and the ISI, but you know, actually it was your little cousin, you know, <laughs> right? right. Um, so then it may not be mutually exclusive. I mean, that's right. Was being, you know, was being paid by somebody who in turn was being paid by somebody who in turn was being paid by the ISI, right? Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Pakistan is obviously in the context of the South and the East, which is where, you know, what I know about and where most American effort has gone into. Pakistan is a huge, huge determinant factor. I, I, I don't, I have no idea um, what, you know, what lies ahead for that relationship. I mean, Pakistan and the Taliban obviously were very close throughout this whole this whole time period. Uh, in some ways, you know, Pakistan or the faction of the Pakistani government that was behind this, I mean, it's not a unitary actor, but like the ISI have gotten what they wanted. They now have this, they now have this, this Taliban regime. Um, are they gonna like what that's like? I don't know. I mean, at you know, um, the, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of tension between the Taliban uh, and Pakistan that, it was hard to appreciate when they were kind of, you know, allied together. But right. the Taliban, you know, at heart, I mean, these are these are Afghans, right? I mean, and I think if they feel like they're being pushed around by the Taliban now that they are their own national government, um, it may not go well. On the other hand, you know, Pakistan is now again, it's sort of trying to use the Taliban to broker negotiations with its own um, you know, militant group, the, the, right. the so-called Pakistani Taliban. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a super complicated relationship that um, I never delved too deeply into. I mean, because it was sort of outside the scope of, um, you know, the Peshas into border border district. Right, right. Um, but a, a relationship that, it, like everything else, it, it has, has so many more layers to it than I think we probably ever understood. I mean, kind of like, you know, I think there's probably so much more to learn about kind of the dance between the NDS and the ISI, mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> the the NDS using, you know, probably maintaining connections with the Pakistani Taliban to counter the ISI's connections with the Afghan Taliban. Uh, um, there probably are so like so many layers to that that yeah. there that the NDS's American partners only had glimpses of uh, because they were being shown what they were what the NDS wanted them to see. Well, and that's that's what's interesting to me about your book is that um, by focusing on Kunar, I mean that is a very specific region that has. Um, where American missteps, I think, and, and correct me if you think differently, it seems to me American missteps have an out, outsized <clears throat> role to play, especially in Kunar, because if you move into Nangahar, you move to Paktia, Host, any of those places, um, yeah, there's American missteps, but man, there's a lot of other stuff going on over there by other actors that are inserting yeah. themselves into the process. But it seems in Kunar, where it's such an Afghan, you know, you're dealing with the, the mountain people you're dealing with Afghans and, and, and um, kind of figuring out how to navigate that and how to reconcile that into the overall um, concept of operations for Afghanistan writ large is I think really um, it's a worthwhile forensic accounting of what needs to be done. What's your biggest takeaway? If, if you're, if you could be King for a day, what's your biggest takeaway? What's the one thing you go, Hey, this is what it needs to change. It's 2001. September 12th, this is what we're going to do differently. I don't think I would. I mean, I, I just, it's just not how my brain works to kind of, uh-huh. I, I, I've dedicated myself to kind of like to, to chronicling and describing. Um, and I, you know, I think if there's one thing that I learned, um, it's that no matter how deep you dig um, into, you know, a place like Afghanistan, there will always be so many more layers that you don't understand uh, yeah. to the extent where as one, as one State Department guy who actually 
incredible guy, a guy who had done his anthropology PhD research in the Weigel Valley in the 1970s, spoke Weigali, um, and wound up working on the Nuristan PRT with the military, which is a frustrating experience, I think, both for him and for the military. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the way he put it was, the more time you spend up here, the more you realize that it is you cannot anticipate the consequences of your actions. There are so many second and third order effects um, yeah. that it's just that it's just impossible. And that this this runs completely contrary to, um, you know, the, the culture that is inherent in the military, which is that you have to make snap decisions. Um, it, it, otherwise, people die like this. It's a battlefield and you have to make snap decisions um, and you can't wait. Oh, you can't wait, uh, you know, until two years from now and see how you know, see what the trickle down effects of something have yeah. been. Yeah. Um, and, and often the, you know, just the rotation cycle um, is shorter than it, it often can take for consequences to appear. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I would say just uh, I, I, I am pretty humbled by, you know, the, the ability to, to, to predict anything <laughs> in Afghanistan. Which, which is a healthy um, mindset, I think, to have about Afghanistan. But I think there's no two ways about it. Your book will probably be a worthwhile blueprint for a lot of people to at least, you know, get some idea of missteps that have been done in the past and the odds of us repeating that exact war are slim because we never seem to fight the last war. Right. But at least say, I, guess, something uh, I mean, the initial phases are the, I think probably the parts that weren't kind of like the most study uh, in terms of, Oh, if we go back to Afghanistan, if there's some similar intervention. And I think, yes, yeah, so the, the, the biggest takeaway for me, I think, and it wouldn't be necessarily so much one for, you know, like the president, um, but probably more one for, you know, for, for commanders and, you know, state department and OGA people would be just, you know, um, appreciating the degree to which you are being used mm. for other ends, ends that are being deliberately concealed from you. Um, by your partners and by the people that, you know, and the extent to which the people who may appear to be the most kind of um, accessible and friendly and willing partners may not be the best partners. Um, you know, maybe the fact that you can talk about a Redskins game with with your Afghan partner um, should suggest to you that he's doesn't have the kind of legitimacy in the society that he, mm. he you know, claims that he does, for instance. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a worthwhile point to make. Um, I want to ask you, um, it, thank you for taking the time to talk about this. This is something I can talk about for hours. I think it's kind of funny and I don't want to put you on the spot, but it, it, what I love about talking to people that have invested so much time and effort in Afghanistan is it's, I feel like de facto therapy in a lot of cases now. Um, and, and that's, uh, so I appreciate that deeply between Afghanistan and Iraq. Is Afghanistan the more interesting country? It's the one that I have gotten attached to, for sure. Um, uh, it, that's not to say that, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm sure you could you could do a deep dive on, you know, say, Diyala province and the history of, you know, American and Iranian involvement in Diyala province over the past 20 years. That would be just as fascinating. Um, but Afghanistan is the one that I've gotten attached to. But I'll say specifically Kunar and Nuristan is where I've gotten attached to. Um, you know, there are lots of other parts of the country that I really that I don't don't know a lot about and not quite as drawn to um, it would it would take some doing to talk me into going back to Sangin, for instance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't blame you um, <laughs> with uh, what is the response been to the book? I, I know it's been over. You know, it's the book has done gotten a lot of praise on social media and a lot of very respected quarters. But what's the praise meant to you? What's the feedback that's been most valuable for you? 
with the book. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, it's been really gratifying to hear the feedback from many different quarters. I mean, there have been, you know, there have been a lot of, you know, intelligence community people who uh, would never have responded to me if I had even known they existed and tried to contact them for the book um, who have been, you know, who have really embraced it, who have contacted me, who have said, you know, I've read this book three times, you know, this, this, this sort of um, speaks to the, to the war that I had. Mm. Um, The most meaningful feedback to me um, has been, um, when people have, um, you know, guys who either, either guys who fought there, um, who have told me that they have bought books, bought copies of the book for family members of theirs, um, to kind of like say, to help explain the war. I mean, there, yeah. there's a guy actually, he was the company commander who I was out on that patrol with when that dog got shot and the, that little kerfuffle happened. Um, he contacted me, he's still in the army. He said, um, he said that like, you know, he and his wife nowadays, they talk through the deployments and everything, but he was like, yeah, back then we didn't yeah. talk deployments. Um, and that was a really formative deployment. Um, and he was like, you know, he gave my wife a, a copy of this book. Um, uh, and so that, that's incredibly meaningful to me. Uh, you know, people see, you know, people give a, give a copy to their dad who's a Vietnam veteran or something like that and say, okay, this, this kind of helps explain um, the war that I was in. So I really appreciate that. And then also super meaningful to me is guys who, whether it was, um, whether they were in Kunar or whether they were somewhere else, you know, altogether in Iraq or Afghanistan, or maybe they weren't in Iraq or Afghanistan at all. Maybe they were in Vietnam, but um, people who say, who read the book and say, oh, this helps me place my year. This helps me understand what, why things were like that during my year, Um, you know, all the the layers that, you know, that just were invisible, um, you know, when we got there, um, that it helps kind of elaborate that. Is is that kind of strange for you that that you wrote a a book, you know, you're doing a a forensic accounting of so many missteps and, and as you said, you're chronicling all this stuff and it ends up being opening up the door for all these kind of therapeutic conversations for people did you, did you, would you ever have anticipated that when you were writing the book or did you think, no, that makes sense? I hoped they would. I mean, cause I think just in the course of talking to people for the book, some of that came out. I mean, I think, you know, there are so many people that I, you know, some people I only had one 45 minute conversation with, but there are many other people that it was like, I had a three hour interview one year and then had another, you know, did another three hour interview when they got back from their next appointment and then their next yeah. appointment, you kind of hear their, their views on the war change and evolve over time. Um, that I, uh, I think I, I think I understood that some of that was going to happen. Um, but it's been very gratifying that it kind of seems like it's been being spread around, um, and, and, and embraced in some ways by, you know, including by people who, um, you know, whose units are criticized in it or who, whose organizations come across great in it. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the SOCOM commander, Rich Clark, um, you know, the four-star SOCOM commander, he, he's a big fan of the book and has said some stuff publicly about it. And, and, and you know, it's, um, the, the book is tough on, on special operations forces and JSOC, um, and on, you know, the, the role that they played. So that's very gratifying. Uh, you know, when I hear that, um, leaders in some of these organizations are like the book, the book got a, a positive, re- pretty positive review in a internal CIA journal, hmm. um, which again, I mean, the CIA is responsible for some of the couple of the worst missteps that that the book chronicles, um, uh, and and the review didn't push back on that. Um, so that kind of thing is also very gratifying when it's like you know it seems like people are kind of willing to willing to uh, you know it, it's maybe not even that it's confronting them with lessons, but it's that it's it's acknowledging lessons that they already know, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's an honest accounting of it. And it, what I what I like is you definitely come in with, I mean doesn't seem like any agenda at all. And it's a very straightforward, honest accounting. What has been the hate? What's been the detractors? What have the detractors said? Um, and is there anything 
worthwhile? Has there been anything that's been like, oh yeah, that's I see where they're coming from? Or no, I think for the most that? part, the detractors don't contact me and tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> no bad um, Amazon reviews, nothing like that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I mean, there are some. I mean, it's it's slow for some people. It's a slog for some people. I mean, there's oh, um, okay, you know, there's a lot of um, if you are not, it, it, there are a lot of Afghan place names. Um, there are a lot of, I mean, it, it just if if um, you know, if you and if you if you're looking for kind of just like a a battle memoir or something like that. That's just sort of a shoot 'em right. up. I mean, it's right. not that. Um, it's also, you know, if you're not really, if you don't want to hear about things that the American military screwed up, um, it's not, not going to be the book for you. It's not a feel good book. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. um, so yeah, I occasionally will see like an Amazon review or something that's sort of like, oh, this, this guy's, you know, slandering our hardworking troops or something like that, but not really. I mean, um, I mean, I think I, yeah, not, not much of that. That that's really high praise. That that if that's the extent of the detractors, that that's seems very mild. Um, and I mean, I will just say, as somebody that read the book, um, I think anybody that's been in Afghanistan will not find that book to be anything close to a slog. I think it reads very very smoothly. I appreciate it. I know it. It, it really does. And and I mean, Afghan names. If you don't like hearing a lot of Afghan names, maybe don't read a book about Afghanistan. I don't know what you're yeah. expecting to hear, but. Uh, yeah. And and certainly I there I I take a backseat to no one in praise and defense of troops and and as I say I go in my bias is always hey are you talking smack unnecessarily or stirring up shit unnecessarily and it's an adult conversation that you're having you're you're bringing up a, and you're not trying to start an adult conversation you're just recounting what was going on and anybody that thinks that we're infallible um, you know is not prepared to have an adult conversation about war and yeah. I think uh, I, I think y- y- it. I, I had so many little epiphanies and little moments and, and, you know, revelations that came to me throughout reading it. I think it's an incredibly readable and, and eminently enjoyable, but disturbing book. It definitely makes you mutter to yourself in the mirror in the morning and go, yeah. right, what about this? And what about that? You know, um, Wes, this is it, it great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. This was, I say, congratulations on the book. I won't press you for what your next book is going to be. Um, but I will just say, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in what that is. And I can't wait to see what you dive into and we'll be watching for it. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't say, you know, it's not quite ready to talk about, but, um, I, I'm not moving away from Afghanistan. Um, so I'm, I'm still, there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot to be uh, uncovered and understood about what happened over the past 20 years. And I'm not, I'm not ready to move on from it. I'm thrilled to hear that. I really am because I, I agree with you. I think Afghanistan's got so many layers. I, I, considering how much we still see World War II movies getting churned out, I think Afghanistan just as a country and the many facets of it, that's a subject we'll never exhaust. Thanks a lot, brother. I really appreciate being on here. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was Wesley Morgan's profile in Havoc. Again, I couldn't recommend The Hardest Place more. So scroll up, scroll down wherever you're listening to this podcast, find the show notes, check out all of Wes's links including the ones to buy the book. Um, you can read more about it, obviously, on Amazon and and purchase it there. But also, uh, you know, by following him on social media, you will be able to find out about his new mysterious projects when they get published. And um, as you can tell from our interview, Wes is not somebody that you know dips a toe in the water. He kind of goes full bore into a subject matter. So whatever his new projects are, you are going to want to know them, and you'll hear about them probably – through the grapevine very quickly when they come out. 
uh, because they seem to, I, I am anticipating they'll probably have a pretty significant impact, certainly in the military and intelligence communities. Um, but, you know, if you want to be on the cutting edge of that, check out all of his links so you can see what he's up to at any given time. I want to thank again, Second Mission Foundation for sponsoring this episode. I would also like to thank our other sponsor for this episode, the Veterans Repertory Theater. The Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and to celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And full disclosure, this is my nonprofit. But events that we put on, lines of effort that we have going on at VetRep are things like the Savage Wonder Podcast or the Savage Wonder Literary Blog or the Write Loud events on Instagram Live or on May 29th, 2022 in beautiful Chester, New York at the Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center. There will be the first annual Savage Wonder Festival celebrating veterans in the arts. We'll have veteran music, veteran bands, veteran poets, veteran writers, uh, what else do we have? Veteran artists. We may have a couple of other things that are still to be decided right now. Um, but veterans in all shapes, colors, sizes, in all kinds of artistic media will be performing, showing, uh, speaking, participating in that event. For right now, because I don't have the website up yet, just yet for the Savage Wonder Festival, but whatever uh, we know about it, whatever we can say about it at this point will be available at vetrep.org. So go to vetrep, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, go to our Now Playing tab, and you will see all the lines of effort that we have going on, including the Savage Wonder Festival. Again, find that at vetrep.org and go to the Now Playing tab to see everything that we have, not just going on now, but coming up in the dangerously near future, including the Savage Wonder Festival to celebrate veterans in the arts. Thanks again to Veterans Repertory Theater for co-sponsoring this episode. I will probably write up something, uh, time permitting, for this episode and have it on Havoc Journal. That will include the show notes. Um, So if you're too bored or disinterested to look at the show notes right now, wherever you're listening to this podcast, check out the article and on Havoc Journal. That'll also have any alibis, anything I misstated, misspoke, misremembered, anything that need more context. Um, you guys know how all that goes. If you do happen to be listening to us, though, right now on iTunes, please go ahead and just give us a five-star review. That would be awesome. If you'd like to give us feedback, all the better. You can say whatever you want to us, questions, comments, snide remarks, but if you can put a five-star uh, review, or if you can just mark five stars with your review, that would be dynamite. We really appreciate it. As always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Wesley Morgan, and we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.